is the seed of truth. Carol talked me into going out to get a bite to eat this evening. And it was another opportunity for us to sow a seed of truth. And you know, wherever we sow a seed of truth, we pause and we say a prayer, saying, Lord, go with this truth. And whoever picks it up, I pray that it will reach their heart for Jesus. Sow a seed for Jesus. For those of you who just joined us today, it's my privilege to introduce to you Pastor Roger Hernandez, the Ministerial and Evangelism Director for the Southern Union Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are so grateful to have Pastor and Mrs. Hernandez, Kathy Hernandez, here with us this week. And, uh, you know, he was born in Cuba, and God has gifted him with so many blessings And he has been sought after in many, many different places and is a wonderful leader for our pastoral team across the Southern Union. He is the author of five books. And yesterday, his message focused on the first three lessons learned from a cave. The first lesson was that of that there are no control outcomes in life. The second lesson was that your reaction matters. Don't mistake God's silence for his absence. And the third lesson was that you are not defined by your sufferings. You are a son and daughter of Jesus Christ. Tonight, as he presents three more lessons from the cave, join me as we pray together and ask God's blessing upon him and as we also pray for each other and God's blessing upon us as we receive this message. O God, our Father in heaven, here stands your servant, Pastor Roger Hernandez. Embrace him with your presence and with the power of your word. Speak to him and speak to our hearts tonight, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Amen. Good evening. It's uh, my pleasure being here with you again. I have a little gift tonight, just just one gift. 
I wrote a book, several of the things that I'm talking about this week, I put it in a book, it's at the ABC, but I got one copy here. If somebody that is here, I'm going to see how good that sermon was yesterday. Somebody can stand up and say at least three of the six things that David lost. The first one, if you know, what, remember the six things that David lost? If you can say three of them. You got them? You can say the six? Uh huh. Okay, very good. Give, give her a hundred applause right there. Thank you very much. Here you go. Here's a book. It's at the ABC. Just go get it. Before I start tonight, I just want to say that I'm very grateful to live in America. Our family immigrated here from Cuba. We left communism behind um, and came to experience. I served in the military. My brother served in the Marines. Uh, he's been serving for 20 years, and my other brother served in the Coast Guard. So I'm very thankful for uh, the service members that have given their lives, and, and they continue to protect us. I'm, I'm very Thankful to live in a country where there is freedom. That's why it's hard for me to feel the burn. <laughs> it's hard. Right. I like, I like uh, our freedoms. So I'm going to talk today about the, the other three things that David learned in the cave. We're talking about the cave. If you're not here last night, here's the text. I'm going to read the text. Then I'm going to give you a little uh, review of what we talked about last night. And then we're going to get in. To what we're going to say today. First Samuel 22. We have David. He's lost his wife. And his house. Help me. What else did he lose? His job. And then. His pastor. And then his best friend. And the last thing he lost was his dignity. And he is stripped of everything. He ends up in a cave. And in that cave. There's three groups of people that join him there. In 1 Samuel 22, one says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives join him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble, the first group, or in debt, the second group, or who were just discontented. That's the third group. Until David... And don't miss this because this is important for tonight's message. Until David was the captain of about 400 men. So what other lessons do we learn from this? Going through loss is no fun. Going through loss is one of the hardest things you can do as a human being. If I look back on my life, one of the hardest things that that I experienced it was, and I, and I can pinpoint the date and the season in my life where that happened. It was, you know, loss has, has a way of, of helping you remember uh, those emotions. And maybe when you see something and hear something, hear a song that's connected to a certain person, some of those uh, feelings come back up. But what, what, one of the greatest, uh, most painful experiences in my life was... Um, a relationship that I had um, with somebody that I thought I was going to marry. 
I, I don't know if, you, if this ever happened to you that you thought for sure something was going to happen and like the opposite happened, right? It's like I, I, I was single and I went to the best place that you could go to find a girlfriend, which is church, correct? Yeah, church. I went to church. And I sat in the back, and my dad was preaching. And my dad was preaching his heart out. My dad's a pastor. But in the middle of the sermon, my dad stopped. And I was sitting in the back. And there was a young lady sitting in the front. And he stopped his sermon and said, excuse me for a second. Uh, hi, what's your name? Uh, how old are you? Uh, do, do you have a boyfriend? If you're a PK, you understand what I want, what I'm going through. If you're a PK, you get it, right? Yeah, yeah, you get it. My my son is here, and he hates it when we ask him to stand up and wave to the people. Uh, it, it, you know, for me as an introvert, uh, I, I'm wondering where, where is my dad going with this? And, and and then he said, "Look, thank you for that information. Um, my son's back there. Get up, son. Stand up." And I'm like really red. I'm like my ears are burning as red. I, I'm really skinny at that time, you know, really skinny. So I look like, like my, my red ears look like a, like a car going down the street with the doors open. And, 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 and he's like, I'm not going to continue to stand up, so stand up. And then he tells, what do you think? <laughs> In the sermon, I don't even know what he preached about. I was so embarrassed. So at the end of the service, I did what anybody would do, was go to apologize to this young lady. And I went to apologize to her. But when I went to apologize to her, she was like, like very good looking. <laughs> so I said, you know, I want to apologize to you. And I'm pretty sure that what my dad did caused some traumatic um, distress in, in your psyche. So I want to... I want to make sure that you're all right. Let me take you out to dinner. Uh, and it's going to take, you know, four or five sessions for us to get over this together. And, and, and this girl, you know, we, I said, okay. First time I went out with her, I said, thank you, God. This is going to be it. This is going to be my wife. Um, she had what I was looking for, and I informed God of my plans. Uh, you know, she was blonde, and she sang, um, and she sat in the front in church. I mean, what, what, else, what else do you want? I mean, it's like, it's all right there. And so we started going out, and things started to get serious. And one day, I took her to work. She had a car stolen, and I took her to work. And before she got out of the car, so Monday morning, I remember, uh, she looked at me, before she got out of the car, and she said, Roger, see, what a woman calls you by your name is never good. <laughs> Remember when your mom used to call you by your name? Yeah, by the whole name. Remember when your mom used to say that? When, you, when a woman calls you by your name, it's, ne it's never to say, hey, Roger, here's a hundred bucks. It, that never happens. It's, it's because you're in trouble. And she looked at me and said, Roger, I don't think this is working. And we're just going to have to go our separate ways. And I was stunned because when you're prepared for it, you can at least, you know, contract your stomach. But she just gut punched me. 
Anybody ever break up with you? Okay, just me. All right, good. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's no fun. No. It was one of my deepest holes. It's hard because you already had, had your mind. I, I, I already pictured my family and my 2.5 kids and, and my picket fence and my job. I already had it all figured out. And when she said, it's over, it just went really, really hard to accept at that time. That for me was my cave. And I remember reading a lot of Psalms during that period. I didn't want to get out of bed. Didn't want to eat. I mean, it's a great weight loss program. You lose weight. You don't want to see anybody. You don't want to play basketball. It was really depressing. That cave was really depressing. And as I was coming out of the cave, I went to school. And I met a young lady who said, the first conversation we had said, I've always wanted to marry a pastor. And I was like, okay. And she was really good looking. She was better looking than the first one. But I didn't, I'm not, I wasn't going to jump in that pool again because there might not be any water. So we started, we became friends. We became friends. We started doing ministry together. And 26 years later, we have four kids and a great life. That other girl, I looked up on Facebook, Facebook a while back. You know, she was a pharmacy blonde. <laughs> Not really in the church anymore. So what, what I gathered, and I, I'm saying this as a way of introduction, is this principle. That God, this is not one of the, one of the points, just a, just a general principle for life. God will sometimes allow us to go through temporary pain for us to be able to experience permanent blessings. And, and that, that, that was my cave. So I relate to David. It's one of my favorite Bible characters. My wife likes Joseph. I like, I, I, I like, I like David. I like David. I like David because he's a real guy. He's a real dude. You know, I, I, the reason I know the Bible is true is because in the Bible, the Bible is not sanitized for your protection. The, if the Bible was, was a document that wasn't true, it would take out all the mess that's in the Bible. I mean, in, fa in Jesus' family's heritage, it's a whole bunch of messed up people. Just like you and me. I mean, you come to church and you act all like decent and dignified, but all of us here have issues. All of us are dealing with, so that's why I like David, because he's just a real guy. And he falls, and he gets up, and his family life is a mess, and, but he's very successful at work. I mean, all the, the realness of this story grips me. So here's David in a cave, surrounded by 400 losers and his family. So what do you learn from this story? From this cave-dwelling season in his life. Here's three things. Number one. We attract what we are. We attract what we are. 
we attract to us people like us. This is a low season in David's life. So, of course, he's going to attract other people that are in a low season in their lives. Isn't it interesting in church, who hangs around gossipers? Not, I mean, not in your church, because your church is perfect and all right and stuff, good. But who hangs around negative people? Who hangs around critical people? Who hangs around positive people? Who hangs around people that really are serious about the Bible and about God and about sharing Jesus and evangelism? See, a long time ago, somebody coined the phrase, the birds of the feather flock together. This is true. Somebody wrote that you are the combination of your top five friends. So if you want to know what type of person you are, Spend some time analyzing your friends. And if you look at your friends and say, man, what a bunch of losers. It says more about you than it says about them. I tell kids all the time when I speak to young adults and, and, and youth, I tell them all the time. Your friends... Make or break a large percentage of your life. Friends can influence you in the right or wrong way. The freeing news of this is, unlike David, you get to pick your friends. You get to decide who you let into your life. And some of us have let into our life bitter Happiness-sucking people. You know those people, right? That you talk to them in like 30 minutes in their presence. You, you weigh like three pounds less because they just suck all the life out of you. You know them? You know them? There's one in every church, right? Usually there's one in the board. And, and, and you, can, you, can, you can picture him or her, right? right? And if you can't and you're in the board, maybe it's you we're thinking about. You are, you attract who you are. See, and I, I, I can't go through a sermon without talking about evangelism. Because this is my passion. I do six meetings a year all over the Southern Union. And I, and I see people coming to Christ on a regular basis. And I work with churches to help them to become more missional. And this is the truth. Statistically proven. Research-based truth. Is this, you attract to your church people that are like the people in your church. You don't win who you want. You win who you are. You attract people to your church that are like the people in your church. So if your church is a happy, friendly, healthy place, more than likely you attract to your church people like that. If your church is a dysfunctional church, there is always people fighting. There is always critical spirit. There is always trying to majoring in the minors. If that's the type of church you are, if you are an unhealthy congregation that nobody's ever good enough to join you and nobody's ever blessed enough and nobody's ever pure enough, you're going to attract to your church people that are as messed up as you are. See, I can say these things because I'm leaving on Wednesday. 
You attract to you people like you. You win what you have. You don't win what you want. So the key in changing your life is not trying to change your friends and your acquaintances. It's to try to change yourself. Because when you work on yourself, those people that are unhealthy around you will leave. You don't have to leave them. They'll leave you. Because they, they'll see you and they look at you talking all good about the pastor. And they're like, man, when, when do you start liking the pastor? Yeah, since I became born again. What's wrong with you? You attract to you people like you. So instead of trying to change everybody else, why don't we start changing ourselves? And saying, remember that old song, It's Me, right? Remember that song? It's me, oh Lord. Yeah, not my brother, not my sister. It's me. It starts with me. We attract who we are. First lesson from the cave. David's on the bottom shelf. He attracts people from the bottom shelf. Number two. Second lesson from the cave. Be your best. Give your best where you're at. Notice what David is. He's in a smelly, humid, imagine. I mean, just picture this. It's going to gross you out, but you already ate. Here's 400 men, not women, men in a cave with no running air or water. You thought your husband smelled. Imagine 400 of those. Multiply that. And they're, 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 everybody was afraid. Nobody wanted to leave. There was very few provisions. People didn't take showers every day. They didn't say, well, you know, I just want to get in the jacuzzi. No. People smelled. And, and, and David is in the cave. And the smell combined by the loss in his life. And the family that is there that they had... They had their hopes on him, and, and the father saw him being anointed, and they said, you, you, our, our hopes are in you, son, because this is a nondescript family. They, it was a high-class family, a nondescript family. So all the hopes of his family are on him, and now he's hiding like a dog. This is what he says about himself. He's in this cave, so he has two options. One is to throw a pity party. And if he did, I could understand it. I mean, if you have all kinds of things happen to you, it's understandable that you would throw a pity party. Poor me. Why this? Why now? Why me? Why them? But David takes a different approach, which is what I want to recommend to you if, if you're living in a cave right now. Be your best, give your best where you're at. This is what David does. If you notice, verse 2 at the bottom, he says, Others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David, listen, was the captain of about 400 men. He became the captain. Leadership position. God had anointed him to be the leader. 
So he thought to himself, I have two choices. I can be the victim and I can play the victim card for the rest of my life. Or if I cannot lead in the palace, I can lead in the cave. And that's what separates mature from immature Christians. And immature Christians praises God when things are going right. When you get the promotion and when you marry the one that you wanted and when your kids are well behaved and when your health is all right and when there's money in the bank and when your car doesn't break down and you have a great job. It's easy to praise God like that. When you're living in the palace, it's easy to praise God and thank Him for all the wonderful things He's done. But mature Christians praise God in the palace and in the cave. They praise God when it's going good and when it's going bad. Because God's goodness is not determined on my circumstances. God is good all the time. When I go to a prayer meeting, there's always people that say, a testimony that will go like this. I want to praise God today because God is so good. I got a job this week. I want to praise God because God is so good. I got married this week. Or my kids got married this week. Or my grandkids were born this week. I want to thank God because God is so good. I was able to buy that new truck. I want to thank God. God is so good. I'm able to retire. And we think that goodness is only associated with positive things happening in our lives. God is good all the time. He's good when the person lives, and he's good when the person dies. He's good when you're sick, and he's good when you're healthy. He's good when you have money, and he's good when you're poor. God is good. So this is what determines the level of maturity that you and I have. Making the switch from to thermostats. You see it on Christian thermometers, right? They're up and down depending on the surrounding temperature. But we're not called to be thermometers. We're called to be thermostats. We set the temperature in the room. We don't sit back and let life happen to us. We make life happen no matter where we're at. Do your best. Give your best where you're at. For some of you, there's, there's a temptation right now in your job. You're not appreciated there. They gave a promotion to somebody else, but you do, you do better work. But this guy is always bringing the, the, the boss coffee, but he doesn't work. He's just trying to ingratiate himself And they get the promotion, but you do better work, and you bypass. You've been baptized, baptized, bypassed several, several times. And so your temptation is, why am I going to give my best and do my best where I'm at? I'm going to wait to they promote me, and I'm going to give my best. For some of you, it's to try to be a better parent to kids that are rebellious. You say, why am I going to be a good mom to my kid if they're rebellious? Why am I going to be a good dad to my kid if they're rebellious? So your tendency is, well, they want to act like that. She wants to act like that. Up to them. I'm not going to give my best. For some of you, it's in marriage. You're trying to put 100% into the marriage. You're trying to go on marriage retreats and try to go on weekly dates and try to bring flowers or whatever it is you're trying to do. You're giving 110% and the other person not even giving 10%. So your temptation is, that's your cave. 
your temptation is, why am I going to give 100%? Why, why am I putting so much into this marriage and getting nothing back from this person? I want to give the less possible. That's your cave. I'm just going to encourage you to be like David. David said, man, I can't lead in the palace, but I'll lead in this cave. And by his leadership, he transformed 400 losers into his top army. The, the ones that he sent first, his top lieutenants, the guys that did the major jobs, these 400 guys. So wherever he is, whether you're, this happen, happens at church too. Well, I have the qualifications to be in leadership, but they took me out this year. They don't really value what I give. Nobody supports me. And you go on your corner and say, you have the Elijah syndrome. Oh, it's only me, Lord. Lies. Not only you. And at the end of the day, who do you work for? Not work for the people in the church. You don't work for human applause. You work for an audience of one. So wherever you are, if you're a worker, you should be the best worker. No matter the circumstances. And I know it's a temptation in the pool to give less than. I had a friend. I went to school with him. I had a friend. First day of class, he would always ask this question to the teacher. He said, okay, teacher, what's the lowest grade that I can get and still pass the class? And some of y'all are living, that, living Christian life just like that. Okay, what's the lowest that I can get and still go to heaven? Okay, what, what is it? Can I, what do I have to really give up? Now, I know there's a lot of things that I should give up. But what do I really need to give up? I'm just going to give the least amount possible. I'm the least of effort possible and still make it to heaven. What is it, Lord? What is it? But I'm saying to you, when Christ... When God was wondering who to send here to save us, he didn't send an angel, which was good. He sent his son that was the best. So he deserves our best for his best. Be your best. Give your best where you're at. The last lesson that David learned was, and this is, It's going to sound very simple, and it is, but at the same time, it's very profound. The third thing he understood was that God was enough. God was enough. He understood that. As I read this story, I wonder to myself, I'm like, okay. This is how God operated in David's life. He was down here, little shepherd boy. Then he built him up, married the king's daughter, living in the palace, assisting the king, playing music, killing the giant. So he lifts him up, and then where he's almost at the, at the peak, then he lets him down. And he loses his wife and his job and all the other stuff. And he goes all the way down here, lives in a cave, and then he builds him all up again to even higher than this first peak. Why didn't he just wait until Saul had died? Why did he have to go through like this? Why, why the spaghetti, Lord? Why the spaghetti? Why? Why? The spaghetti, why? I prefer straight lines. My best explanation 
is what David himself says in a psalm that he wrote while he was in the cave. Psalm 142 was David's psalm in the cave. Okay? I don't know where he found pen and paper, but he found it and he wrote it. This is a song that he wrote. Verse 5 gives us the clue. God is enough. Notice. Notice. I pray to you, O Lord, and I say, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. See, I think God, with David, with me, and I'm pretty sure with a lot of us, has had to take some things from us so we realize that 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 we thought we needed, we can live without. Because idols are not only form of stone. Idols are anything, even good things, even great things that you say, I can't live without. Your wife can be an idol. Your kids can be an idol. Your schooling can be an idol. Your job can be an idol. Your religion can be an idol. And God takes these things away. And David is left naked, bare, downtrodden. And he looks up and writes his psalm and says, Hey, I, I just realized something. I realized that I might not have a wife, but if I have you, I have enough. I, I, re I just realized, Lord, that I don't have a job, but if I have you, I have enough. This is what the psalm is saying. I just realized that I don't have a friend. I don't have a pastor in this cave. I don't even have my dignity. But if I have you, I have enough. And then when you're down and he has this, this deconstructed you, then he can build you back up to be even higher and better. Sometimes God allows temporary pain so you can experience permanent blessings. And then when he's in the throne, then he can look back and say, all right, I'm just a frog on top of a fence post. See, if you, if you go, if you ride down the street and you see a fence post and you see a frog on top of that, you probably think hey, that frog jumped up there. You, if you see a, a little bird, a robin on top of a fence post, you say, well, that bird flew there. You see like a squirrel, you, you know he climbed up there. But if you're going down the street and you see a turtle on top of a fence post, there's only one way they got up there. Somebody put him there. This is what I'm telling you. In my office, I have a little turtle on top of a little fence post to remind me every day. That wherever I accomplish in life, I do it because of the grace of God. Because God knows some of you should have been dead by now. You used to wake up every Sunday morning hugging the toilet because you were so drunk. You didn't even know how you showed up at your house. You should have been dead by now. You made too many mistakes to count. You have, you have enough mistakes for three generations. And yet God has redeemed you and has brought you. And he wants you to, to get to a place where you say, okay, God, you are enough. Whatever it is, all the trappings of the world and all the things that we like and all the things that we wish we had and or that we do have, all those things are great. But at the end of the day, 
they're all going to end up in a dumpster. The only thing we're going to take, take to heaven is our character. And God molds our characters in ways that purifies. And that is not sometimes an easy or pleasant process. But at the end of the day, I will promise you that just as David got out of this cave, you will get out of your cave too. Caves are meant to be temporary. Don't stay in your cave. This is not meant for you. It's just a temporary time in your life. All the stuff that David lost, God gave back to him. Wife. He even went overboard with the wife. Job. Better one. House. Not living in a house. Now it's his house. Prophet. Friend. Dignity. Everything he took from him, he gave it back to him better. God has not forgotten about you. It doesn't matter what it is that you're going through. When you're living in a cave, remember three things. Number one, we attract what we are. Number two, be the best. Give your best where you're at. And number three, God is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you today because even though we are cave dwellers, this is not our home. And you have promised us a royal crown. Until that day comes, help us remain faithful through you, to you, through the storm. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.